You're listening to Van Sounds. I'm Phil Corbett. So this week, I have something completely different. Um, This is actually an episode swap with The Dirtbag Diaries. If you aren't familiar, The Dirtbag Diaries is an outdoor adventure podcast and an early, totally formative show in the world of podcasting. Um, They will be playing a single, condensed version of the Dice series, and I will be playing this story called Crash and Burn. Um, So with that, I'll send it over to the show creator, Fitz Cajal. It's disconcerting for me to admit this, but this may be the strangest situation I've found myself in. Right now, I'm sitting in the 13-foot travel trailer parked in the driveway. But there are no cars in the driveway, so there's no way to tow the trailer. So here it sits, with me in it, serving as a summer office in front of a cozy, beautiful yellow home in a quiet Seattle neighborhood, sitting amongst blooming foxgloves in the shade of a dogwood. There's a part of me that still expects the people we are house-sitting for to return from vacation. I'm getting into yard work. Maybe that could be gratifying. It all seems a little, how do you say this? It all seems adult. To me, adult has always been a humorless word. If I were to do word association, I would come up with mortgage, health insurance, TiVo, couch, side safety airbags, and hemorrhoids. Adulthood finds some of us at a young age, sometimes through tragedies. Others never find it, which can be an equal tragedy. But most of us find it at some point in our middle years. And and that number is getting older. Psychologists and professors suggest that young adulthood is prolonged by economic troubles, advanced degrees, or in my case, the road. Essentially, it's taking us a little bit longer to get older. And I'm not sure if that's a plus or a minus. There is a flip side to the word, though, a positive spin. Adult also means coming of age, like in the sense of uh, fine wines maturing. It's when the hard work, the slow, unseen process bears fruits. It's when intuition becomes grounded in experience. It's when we know what we are put here to do without equivocation. Yes, I am one of the biggest advocates for life spent on the move, on the road, for a lifestyle where less is often more. And yes, I am currently stuck without wheels in a quiet corner of Seattle leading a very adult lifestyle. But for the time being, I'm totally cool with it. And you know why? Because there's a story behind it. Adulthood is a far off place. You're gonna need a trusty vehicle. I'm Fitz Cajal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Drive it until it dies. That was the logic. My family and friends acted as if I was on a run of Vegas roulette where I only bet on black. Are you sure you want to drive there? I did. Is that wise? Well, it's better than credit card debt or doing nothing at all. I would point my truck in some direction and drive for days. I drove for work. I drove for fun. I drove because I lived in my truck. There were friends to meet, stories to tell, back roads to explore. 
Mile after mile, I kept getting lucky. Talking with old friends, they'd always ask about the truck's well-being, like it was an aging dog. I bought my 93 four-cylinder Toyota pickup truck with 110,000 miles on it, old by many people's standards. I was 19, and I'd been saving since I was 16. I had to have a friend come with me to pick up the truck because I didn't know how to drive stick. We drove straight to an empty parking lot, and he gave me the basic instructions. I named the truck Crash for good luck. That was almost 15 years ago. I've had my truck longer than I've known Becca, longer than I've known my best friend. There have been rough patches. Just after college, I went a whole month without the starter. I simply popped the clutch to get it going. I drew the line when my 80-year-old grandfather, with two artificial hips, insisted on helping me push the truck up a slight incline to generate momentum. I broke out the credit card for that one. When Crash crossed the 200,000-mile mark, I was driving on Highway 89 to see Becca in Mount Shasta. We'd been dating for nine months, but already knew we were going to make go of a life together. By the time the odometer crossed the 300,000-mile mark, we were living in Seattle, married, and running a business together. I was driving to the Banff Mountain Film Festival to premiere my first film. Up until this year, I've never lived in one place longer than four years. As a kid, we moved across the country from south to north and north to south. The pattern continued into my adult years. I think by that stage, I needed a home. And Crash, with a constantly revolving friend in the passenger seat. And then Becca. And then this winter, Becca and Tep and I stacked in the bench seat. Well, the truck kind of became my home. Crash simultaneously provided the means to retrace other stories and create my own. Crash was a vehicle in every sense of the word, but still, relatives wondered when I was gonna grow up. I was growing, thriving even. Ansel Adams' greatest accomplishment as a photographer is a singular image known as Moonrise Hernandez, New Mexico. In 1941, Hernandez was nothing more than a few beleaguered shacks huddled around an adobe church. Cars sped by on US 84 towards Santa Fe. Adams was at the tail end of an epic road trip, maybe his most productive period ever. Yet his personal life was in turmoil. His marriage was on the rocks, he was trading romantic letters with an assistant, so he packed up his young son and best friend to take a road trip that verged on a midlife crisis. They encountered snow in the four corners, pushed through the night, and slept in the car. The storm rolled through, leaving snow on the Sangre de Cristos. It was November 1. Adams found himself in Hernandez just before sunset. The white mountains gleamed in last light. The crosses in the tiny church's graveyard still glowed. The church windows were dark, like sunken eye sockets. Adams was typically meticulous about location and setup, but there was no time. He pulled the car to the shoulder. He yelled to his son and friend as they frantically set up the tripod and camera. Normally, he would use an exacting equation for the frame, measure the exposure in each quadrant, plug the numbers into a formula he had created. It was a terribly tricky shot. The white crosses, the lit mountains, dark church. All the years of shooting, of practice, led to this moment, when his honed intuition would have to replace delicate textbook calculations. He remembered the candle value of the full moon, stepped beneath the hood, and completed 
what would be one of the most iconic photos ever taken. It was, and still is, the embodiment of the American West. That image would define Adam's career. It would take him 30 years to truly figure out how to print it. In 2006, 55 years later, it was Halloween. I drove alone, heading for Hernandez. It was the equivalent of the astrological lineup that Adams had seen so many years ago. I wanted to be there for the occasion, to see what Adams had seen. Then, like magic, the world fell into a facsimile of the moment 55 years earlier. I drove through Four Corners in a churning early season storm, through Durango, then crossed into New Mexico. I slept next to an oil derrick. In the morning, the sky cleared, and I moved onward, stopping only to write and brew coffee. Hernandez had grown. It still had the same lonely feeling it had had in the photo, but it was more cluttered. US 84 had been moved and widened. Adams would return many years later and say something to the effect of, you can never make a good photo of this now. A new church sits across the street now. I parked there and got out on foot. A heavy padlock and chain held the old church door shut. But I walked around the side into the cemetery, sat amongst the tall grass and tombstones and waited. The moon rose, the mountains glowed, the dead remained in their graves. It was beautiful. Then it got dark, I bought some roasted chilies from a small store nearby, I got in crash and kept driving, unsure of exactly where I was heading. I'd come looking for the shadow of Adam's defining moment of his career. I needed to know what it looked like. And at the time, I didn't know why. But now, many miles later, I've realized it was for my benefit. It sounds self-aggrandizing, but I will be honest. I look to men like Adams and Muir, and I'm trying to shape my life after the model they laid out for me. If a moment can define an entire career, it would be vital to be able to recognize that moment when it happens. I'd need to know it when I stood poised in the same situation. This June, I turned crash towards Yosemite, like I have a dozen times before, and sped out of Seattle in the gray dawn gloom. Crash was loaded with haul bags and ropes and snowboard gear just in case I had a little extra time on the way home. Austin rode shotgun. He was headed for his first trip up El Cap. I texted Mikey, on our way, see you in 15 hours. I had my team, maybe the best I could have assembled to pull this mission off. I was excited, excited the same way I was when I first pointed crash towards Yosemite 14 years ago. We were headed there for work, but also something more. I've been working on this story for years. It was the first all disabled ascent of El Cap. It was a climbing story, but it also wasn't. It was a story about passion, about belief, even if the face of stacked odds. The underdog story I've always been wanting to tell. My friends Craig, Jerem, and One-Armed Pete had failed on El Cap before, but what they lacked in limbs, they made up for with heart, laughter, and the joy for life. The outcome of this trip was far from certain. It had been a financial risk to even try to tell this story. Before we left, I told the team, my only request is that we bring the same effort to this project as they do. We need to match the moment. Then, 40 miles north of Portland, a shriek of metal grinding against metal. I knew it was over. I called roadside assistance. The tow truck arrived. 
I tried to act calm in front of Austin, to seem chipper and positive, even as my home for the last 15 years, even as my youth seemed to slip away. We bounced in the tow truck. I called my brother, who found a shop close to his home. From the office, Becca began calling rental car companies. Two hours later, the mechanic walked in to tell me that the transmission was dead. More than a $3,000 fix. Almost the entire budget for our project, plus a delay of several days. And that's when I knew. It wasn't the day I started a business, or the first 100-hour work week, or even the birth of TEP that signaled the end of my youth. It was that final shudder and shriek of metal that deposited me on the threshold of a new chapter. Crash left me standing on a concrete work floor stained with oil. I was confused, not by where I needed to be or what I needed to be doing, only by the logistics of getting there. I needed to go. And so, without having to think longer than 10 seconds, I let Crash go. I signed over my truck to a junkyard for $200. The odometer read 342,732 miles. I loaded what I could into my brother's car and left the rest to sort out later. Walker handed me the keys, supported me, propped me up as he always has, and I kept driving. Old night is over. It felt like waking to the first day of fall. You walk outside one day and you know it's no longer summer. A specific date doesn't dictate the shift. It's a not so subtle a combination of light, temperature, smell, moisture, and wind direction. I had unequivocally reached adulthood. Those years were in the rear view mirror. There was no point in wishing them back. Yosemite was calling, just like it had been for the last 15 years. The Gimp Monkeys were waiting. So I kept going with the same dogged persistence of crash, with the same singularity and directive of an accelerator pressed to the floor. Austin and I drove through the night. I took the final leg. We considered stopping just before the park's entrance, but kept going. We slid into the valley before dawn, before tour buses filled the roads. Five days later, when the gimp monkey's belly flopped onto the summit of El Cap, exhausted but full of smiles, I knew I'd match their energy. I'd given my home to tell that story. I don't know if it will be one of the defining moments of my career, but it felt that way. I will never feel that way about a car again, and that's fine. After all, he wasn't it. A hunk of finely engineered metal and plastic that didn't have a soul. But the idea that was my truck did. The idea that more can be done with less, that tenacity, community, and belief matter so much more than flash, ego, and sexiness. The reliability trumps shooting stars that money spent living passionately is better than any piece of gear you can buy. I will say this, though. At some point, I think every person should call a vehicle a home. What that vehicle looks like is up to you. It could be a shiny RV when you're 65, a bike when you are 13, 
a truck with too many miles on it when you are 19. It could be travel, the climbing life, family, passionate work, but when the opportunity presents itself, take it. These vehicles can deliver you to a physical geographic destination or to an imagined wondrous place that is no less real. Don't be afraid. Turn the wheel, ease out into traffic, and keep your eyes ahead until the roads open into dust, and wind, and sun. And it's amazing what you'll find out there. You won't regret it. I promise. Van Sounds is produced by me, Phil Corbett. The show this week was a rebroadcast from The Dirtbag Diaries. If this episode did it for you, which I hope it did, there are a ton more great episodes where that came from. I will link the show below. A huge thanks to Jen Altschul, who coordinated the swap, and I've listed all of the music in the show description. Van Sounds is now available on the podcast app Stitcher. And as always, you can find the show on Twitter, iTunes, and at the still minimal website, vansounds.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.